This episode contains content that may be sensitive for some listeners. The Thrive Global Podcast is a production of Thrive Global and iHeartRadio. My new advice for everyone is it doesn't matter and nobody cares, which sounds horrible (laughs) unless you break it down. But most of the things, even today, that I've worried about don't matter and they certainly won't matter tomorrow, definitely not in a week. Unless they matter a year from now, I don't give it energy. Hello, I'm Ariana Huffington and welcome to the Thrive Global Podcast. Each week, we're having candid conversations with top business leaders, celebrities, athletes, and influencers to explore how they go from surviving to thriving and how you can too. Ginger Z is one of America's top storm chasers. As the chief meteorologist for ABC, you've probably seen her report the latest on almost every major weather event over the past six years, including most recently Hurricane Dorian. But Ginger isn't just passionate about extreme weather. She also has a zest for adventure and has skydived, ice boat raced and surfed on Good Morning America and danced on Dancing with the Stars. But what I love most about Ginger is how she's using her platform to really help improve people's lives. As a mental health advocate, she has been open about her struggles with depression and anorexia, focusing her memoir, Natural Disaster, I cover them, I am one, on the natural disasters she's experienced in her own life. And as a proponent of science education, she wrote a three-part book series, Chasing Helicity, to inspire young people to get interested in science. Welcome, Ginger. I'm so happy to have you on our podcast. Thank you. I am honored to be here. So you start your memoir, Natural Disaster, I cover them, I am one, with 10 days before I started my job at ABC News, I checked myself into a mental health hospital. That's a very dramatic opening line. It takes a lot of guts and a lot of strength to open with that. Why did you make that decision 10 days before starting this big new job? Yeah, the decision to say it out loud was the big decision. The decision the day I decided to go to the hospital was to escape myself and to save myself. I didn't think that I would be alive any longer, and I knew I needed to be. I had gotten this great job, my dream job, working at a network after putting all of my love and passion into my career, developing that so much. My mental health wasn't coming along with me. And that plateau I felt, or not even a plateau, I was at a cliff. I was ready to jump. I was ready again to finally attempt suicide, which I had done in the past, and succeed this time. And I thought the moment that crossed my mind, I had learned from the first two times, I should say this to someone because these moments are fleeting. I remembered that after I came home from both of my past suicide attempts, I remembered looking at myself in the mirror and saying, why did I do that? Who is this person? For me, it was an impulse. So I was able in that moment when I felt that way to say, I got to do something. I needed to make a big change. My mom had been begging me since I was a teenager to go get inpatient help and actually work on my mental health. And I had ignored it. I had often, even after a suicide attempt, just ran with whatever happened next and ran away from it. And so this was the first time I was sitting in it. 
And I went and then I called my mom and I called my cousin. My cousin happened to be closest to me. I was down in DC doing some meetings and I just said, I think I need to go to the hospital. And she said, I'm going to take you. And we went and that decision changed my life because that's when I finally started getting healthy. And that was now almost 10 years ago. Mm. And I love that moment in my life, even though it sounds like a horrible thing to say that I wanted to kill myself. And I love that moment because it's the moment that I finally got the help I needed and that I feel like people need to do today. You know, and that's the thing we talk about mental health stigma. I think we've come very far. People are saying it. We're doing a podcast about it. The next step is action. What do you do when you get to that thought or that process? Where can you go? There is still a stigma when it comes to mental health hospitals. And you know why? Because they're horrible, (laughs) because they're frightening and they're cold and they're in like alcohol and drug rehabilitation. I would say they're almost sexy at this point. Yes. (laughs) When someone needs drug and alcohol, you say, well, good for them. Oh, wonderful. You'd fully understand that. I think we're our society. We've gotten there. If we can get mental health hospitalization to be like that, we are going to make huge strides because that's what people need. You go to the hospital when you break your leg. You go to the hospital when anything happens, when you've got some condition that you can't figure out. Go to the hospital. And I think that could help so many people. And then the hospitals need to be able to take that in because there's a whole big issue with the business of mental health. It doesn't make as much money in the hospitals. You know, that's a whole different conversation. But I think just getting people there in the first place would be a great step. So what was the hospital that you went in like? It was just like the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I mean, it really was that wild. It almost looked like prison. It, what I imagine, I haven't been to prison, but I imagine it to be like this. And the person that I was in a room with sharing my roommate, I guess, she was completely incapacitated mentally where she just didn't get out of bed until people came and got her out of bed. I think this is why, because there's so many variants of how people can deal or have different mental health, bipolar, schizophrenia, and they can present differently. It was very cold. Talk about cold, not at all welcoming, but I would say you come in, They strip you of all of your things because they don't want you to have anything. You give up your cell phone and all that stuff. And you go in this room and that's when it hit me. I almost turned around and said when I saw the other people and thought, um, I'm good, actually. I don't think I'm this way. But I, they said, no, you, you have to stay for 24 hours. I forgot what the you know initial part is. You already checked yourself in. So then I just said, let me stay here. You do several sessions a day. It's so intensive, the therapy that they give you. Group sessions, a lot of time to sit and think by yourself with nothing around you. And I thought, for me, this was the wake-up call I needed. I was also in a horribly abusive relationship, and this was part of me escaping him. And so there's this whole combination of I had lost myself, and it was the first time I remembered feeling me inside me again, Mm. was in this cold, strange place, but I had enough time to find me. That's amazing that even though the surroundings mm -hmm. were so cold and hard, Mm -hmm. you were able to talk, to surface things that you probably had not given enough time to before. I hadn't. And I had a good friend of mine, one that I've known since we were three years old. She called me just yesterday and she said she's starting to have tremors. She's got this a whole bunch of things going on. And she's a mother of four. And she said, I'm thinking that I can't do this anymore. I'm at that point. And I said, if it really gets there and you feel that way, you can go to the hospital just like you can go to the hospital for other things. And it was like a revelation to her that she could do that. It's not an escape. That's to get better. That's to settle out. And I said, you're allowed to spend time on yourself. 
and to take a step back and a check-in. And that's what that did for me. It was much deeper than that. I ended up finding my therapist that now has helped me to become the healthiest version I've ever been of myself. And I haven't stopped seeing him. And after I left from that week of intense therapy of inpatient, we did two to three sessions a week for almost a year. Whenever I was in New York, I was at my therapist because I traveled a lot for work. So that is how I got better. Everybody's journey is different. Some people do need medication. There's a lot of options. But for me, this is what I needed. For you, it has been therapy and finding the right therapist. therapist. So what made him the right therapist? (laughs) He is the coldest. He's he's like the (laughs) hospital. He's very scientific. He's very to the point. He does not blow up your skirt at all. He doesn't care what you think. He just wants to achieve a better result of the type of person you are. He listens to you, but it's not just listening. He has a goal. He's writing things down, but not just writing notes. I see him once in a while drawing, and I think he's drawing things to connect. I think he's just brilliant. I think he takes personalities and he's able to, even within a couple of sessions, but certainly over now almost 10 years, he'll call me out and he'll say, really? Because I remember when you were saying this and I'm like, no one, no one's ever done that to me before. <laughs> you need to be put in check. Yes. Especially when one big thing that I think a lot of people suffer with, and I did, was being honest with myself. You have to be honest with yourself before you can be honest with other people. And that honesty came through. And that's why writing my book and starting my book with that was one of the most healing moments mm. of my life because I finally said it. And also the help you are giving so many people. The fact that you are talking about it, you are willing to be so vulnerable, and that you are also underlining the importance of talking about Mm -hmm. these things, the importance of therapy, because so often medication becomes a substitute. It's one thing if you need medication plus therapy, but when it becomes just medication, people never have the chance to get to the roots of what is happening. Then finding the right therapist Mm. who can guide you through has been life-changing for them. So I completely share what you've experienced. We put so much work into our bodies, most people. We go to the gym, we focus on food and exercise, but we don't talk about training our mind. And that's what a therapist does. You know, people have annual checkups at the very least on their body, but they don't go for an annual checkup of their mind. And of course, I think people need much more than one checkup (laughs) a year. But I think that would be also a societal shift that we could do where our emotional health and well-being is looked at exactly the same. And I think we're getting better. Meditation has brought on this huge supply and everybody can find it tangible in an app. And I love that, that people have the ability to go because that's working on your mind. But it gives you a moment, just like it would if you had to go to the hospital and think about it, and actually focus your mind and heal your mind. And that's why I'm so glad to see that we are making steps in that way. And so do you meditate now every day? Yep. I try every day. Five out of seven. And what time? Because you start your day so early. Four. Four a.m. You start at four. So what time do you meditate? At 4.15. I usually get up and um get in the car and I do it in the car on the way. I'm fortunate I have that time yes. with a driver that I don't have to worry about it. But I do at least a 10, sometimes up to 20 minute meditation in that time to re- start my brain in the right way and then move on from there. And if I need it again in the day, I might do even a five minute breathing exercise or something. I was talking to my therapist too, because I was a closet smoker for a while, which is not how smokers usually are, but I was hiding it from everyone. This is in my early 20s when I was probably at some of my unhealthiest mentally. And I was telling him, you know what smoking was? 
it's meditative in a strange way because you take yourself away from the situation, you breathe, you are alone a lot of times, so you have a moment. And I thought, aside from the toxicity of it, <laughs> the idea is right. A smoke break or a break is really what you know, meditation can be. So that's where we should almost say, oh, I'm a meditator. I got to go outside, you know? Yes, you know, it's very profound what you said. Right. Breathing is such a big part of meditation. Mm -hmm. So the more we introduce breathing and meditation into our lives, the less of a need we're going to have for vaping or cigarettes. That's such a great point. And I love what you said about little breaks. At Thrive, we have an app, which is part of our behavior change product that we call Reset. And basically, you create a guide of the things that help you de-stress. And anytime you're feeling stress, it's under 60 seconds you play it for yourself, like pictures of your children or inspirational quotes, music, anything. And it's kind of amazing how quickly after a little break, we can reset. Yes. It doesn't take a long time. I guess that's what the hospital for me was. You know, when you have to power down your phone because it's not working right and you do it fast, sometimes you have to really unplug it. And I think that's what the hospital was for me as well, was a true unplugging of everything, not just because I gave up my electronics and phone at that point, but because I had to let everything out and then fill it back up. And as you're describing finding that center in yourself. It reminds me of my favorite weather metaphor, which is uh, the eye of the hurricane. Mm -hmm. Because it's kind of incredible how even in the biggest hurricane, I, I use the picture of the eye of the hurricane when it comes to Dorian in my last newsletter. You have that incredible center of peace. Do you think that's a great metaphor for life? Yes. And that's why in my job, meteorology has saved me. The science that I studied and care so deeply about, thinking about how our Earth makes storms, it's because the poles are cold and the equator is hot. All our Earth wants to do is equal that out. It wants to spread the temperature evenly. That's never going to happen. But in the meantime, it's making storms, and that's what storms are made of. In a hurricane, it's a perfect example because when you have the eye wall, which is the most frightening part. I was just last year in Hurricane Michael, the Category 5 that hit Mexico Beach, Florida. And to see the damage that something like that can do in person, I had studied it forever, but to be able to see that and being in Gulfport and Katrina, that eye wall is ferocious. But then to have the eye go over you and have that calm, it's because the air is sinking. For the air to sink, it has to rise somewhere else. And that's the process where things, just like gravity, you have things that rise, they have to fall. And that's what that center of the eye is. It's an imbalance that's trying to equal itself out. That's all the hurricane is. It's just a bunch of thunderstorms that got caught up in the circulation of the earth. And somewhere in there, all of their down became up again. And that's, I say all the time, the clouds don't last forever. They can't and they won't as far as depression goes. But also, that's not how the atmosphere works, and that's not how life works. You have to have sun to make a storm, and you have to have storms to then get sunshine. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. And we are back with the Thrive Global podcast. Let's rejoin the conversation. So what are some of the things that you do every day? We mm. call them here micro steps. Mm -hmm to help you find that center of the hurricane because you have 
two children, one and Real three. hurricanes. <laughs> uh, you have real hurricanes. Yeah. You have a big, stressful job. What do you do every day? Because I love what you say about it's all about action. Mm-hmm. So what are the action steps that you take to help you find that center? I've been doing this for the last two years. I have a glass on my shower and I make two little footprints of my son's feet and put their initials over that because they're always in my brain, but it's just kind of a physical way of marking my thought for them for the beginning of the morning, kind of setting an intention for the day that they are my purpose. They're my everything. Not that I don't know that, but it's nice to see it. And a reminder. It. A reminder. And then I write something next to those two little feet that I'm grateful for. It could be as simple as macadamia nuts because they keep me so full and I like them. Or it can be something grand like my mother. You know, it can be whatever that comes to my mind right at that moment. And you write it on the I write the, it on the shower wall on the shower while wall. I'm showering. And then on the glass door of the shower, I write a goal for the day or and an And what do you write it with? My finger. Just I love like that. On the, you know, on the steam. Mm-hmm. And my husband always tries to figure it out because you can kind of see what's left. <laughs> and until we clean the thing, it looks a little messy. But he, after the first one, he can always read what I wrote. And he's like, why'd you do that? Why'd you? <laughs> so that's just for me. I mean, that's not for anyone else to see. It's, but it's kind of like a gratitude journal in a way to start the day. That's one of the big things that I've been doing. Then I meditate. I would say that's a big moment. I always try to do something positive for someone at work because I used to always say our job is so strange that we're all there before 5 a.m. and then you say good morning to like 50 people. It's just a lot. There's a lot of lights and there's a lot of stimulation and there's a lot of like, ugh. And nobody gets used to waking up at that hour and no one necessarily loves it. Even though we all love our jobs and we're grateful and all those things, it's hard. So in that first part, I try to always compliment someone, a genuine compliment, because it always sets the tone right for the day. It's not about me. It's kind of like a service in a way, a service to others. I try to force that even if I'm not 100% feeling it because then I do. It makes me feel it. So that's another one that I do. All of them are very early. I love that because it's a reminder that giving is a form of self-care. It is. We think of self-care as being just about ourselves and massages and Mm -hmm. taking time off, but giving, which is often, as you said, just acknowledging someone and making what could be an impersonal interaction personal Mm -hmm. and the difference it makes. It does. And having that, I do have genuine curiosity about people, but that comes more like at 10 a.m., 5 a.m. It's just not as natural. And so I have to force that because it also gets me in the right mindset for the rest of my day, which is that's a big part of my job is the curiosity and getting the brain started. So it is selfish in a way, too. Yeah. But also what you said about the footprints and your children and being reminded of how central they are to your life. How hard has it been, though, to have two little children and a big career? Are you suffering like all working moms I talk to from mom guilt? Mom guilt. That's implied, right? That's just part of being a parent. I (laughs) think it's just guilt in general, fear. All of a sudden, I'm afraid of things. I've never been afraid of things. The fear of the kids, the most ridiculous thoughts go through my head about these kids that are going to happen. So yes, I have guilt, I would say, when I travel, especially. Being at work, I know I'm going to go home at some point during the day. I'll see them. I don't have as much guilt. I can travel for a week or more at a time when I'm on a storm. So that's getting harder and harder, especially as Adrian, my oldest, gets older because he knows I'm gone. And he'll often tell me, I really miss you, mommy. Why don't you come home now? You know, so he's starting to be another force. And I can see my husband like, yeah, (laughs) he didn't tell him to say that, but he (laughs) likes that he says it. And um, I just try to tell myself when I get home, I am going to focus on him. 
And I tell him that. And I make sure he knows that while I'm there, even though I'm focused on work, I love him. I'm thinking about him. He's a huge part of my life. And I think that's all you can do. I had a mother who worked a lot. She was a neonatal nurse practitioner. She still is. And she still works a lot. I never for one moment think that she was a bad mother because she was gone so much. I think she would have been a bad mother if she was a bad mother. You can be a good mother and be there 30 hours versus 150. I don't know. I don't think that the time really makes you a good mother or not. I think that it ends up being the quality of the time, which seems we all know that. But when you really think about it, after I had Adrian, six weeks after I started the show Dancing with the Stars, I was traveling across the country with an infant. So I was away from my infant doing this crazy show, working two full-time jobs. And then I realized I'm starting to focus more than I ever have in my life. I was running at the best I'd ever been because when I was with him, I didn't look at my phone. I didn't look at anything else. I wasn't distracted. I was solely about that baby. And then when I was dancing, I was solely about dancing. When I was at GMA, I was solely about that. And it taught me something that I maybe hadn't done so much as that I needed to focus that way and allow myself to be in that moment. And that's what having children, I think, sometimes does anyway. But it did for me. But that's such an important point. Our modern lives are so full of distractions Mm -hmm. and our phones make Mm -hmm. it so hard to avoid them. So if we can actually be deliberate and intentional, that's a huge lesson. Yes. And it made me not procrastinate as much, which is interesting because when I was in front of the task at hand, I found myself not waiting because I didn't have any time to wait. I knew that there wasn't going to be another moment to finish whatever it was that I needed to finish at home. Get it done now. Don't go get distracted and do something else. The most got checked off my list during the busiest time of my life, which is interesting. And that's why earlier this year, you said that your wellness goal was Mm -hmm. to get strong. And this is part of getting strong from everything you are saying. You said, my journey with diet and fitness has been a long one, riddled with an eating disorder and obsession with exercise. So how do you deal with New Year resolutions? (laughs) Because for people who are obsessive about diet and exercise, New Year resolutions can become a pitfall. Mm -hmm. I have a New Year resolution every Monday, don't you? Like, (laughs) don't we all? (laughs) I say it jokingly that I'm going to do it with technology. I'm like, you know, my sons at one point aren't going to like their picture put on. I said, I'm not going to do that. So as of tomorrow, as of Monday, I'm not doing it. And then by like Tuesday, I'm posting the cutest picture because I can't help myself. (laughs) It's how I do carbs, right? I'm like, yeah, but the kids have rice and the rice looks so good. Okay, fine. I'll have some. So I think I, I, I look at those because when you are anorexic, and I will say, forever because I do think that it's a lifelong disease. I think that I am extremely healthy within my anorexia, more healthy than I've probably been ever. But what I started realizing was it's not that it goes away, especially around the new year, transitions, changes not just in time, but in place for me. But my immediate thing to control is to start restricting Mm -hmm. food. Whether I'm subliminally thinking about it or not, it's in me. I trained my brain at that young age, between the ages of 9 and 15, were my worst years. And those were the times where I was formative. I mean, that's how you're developing your identity in that time. Part of my identity is anorexia. So now it's almost as if I use it to help. What I've learned about anorexia, even within the last week, because we talked a lot about it this week at my appointment for my therapist, when you're chasing a storm, you have a lot of like trail mix and beef jerky, and you don't get to eat a lot of food because nobody's open. And there's no power. Well, there were a couple of restaurants open, but if they are, it's not the healthiest food. And there's part of me that forces myself now to eat sometimes an unhealthy meal 
in a case like that, because a transitional time or a chaotic time, like a hurricane coverage, I tend to restrict. I usually would come home from a storm coverage and whether I tried to or not, have been somewhat anorexic for a week where I'm just restricting naturally. So I forced myself to eat and I talked it out with my producer. Him and I were talking about why this was happening. Why were we both thinking so much about food? And it's because we're in a hurricane. There's so much chaos outside of you. There's so much you can't control. Your job is pulling you this way. You're not home with your kids. There's all these guilt. Of course we want to grab onto the one thing. So I now have said to myself, eat that meal. Show yourself that tomorrow you look exactly the same. It's not going to kill Mm -hmm. you. Having the french fries did not, you know what, still fit in my jeans today. So I've gone through these. It's a strange reverse control where I'm telling myself, show yourself in these times of transition that you know that you go straight to anorexia. You know anorexia grabs you during those times. Prove it wrong. Prove yourself wrong that you're going to be okay. And it really has started to help. And I talked a lot to my therapist about this this week. He's like, it's interesting that you did it that way, but that is healthy. To be so aware that you're doing it, that it's come on, that you're trying to start to restrict. And it sounds like I'm not healthy at all in this, but this was just a good example of this last week. I would say around transitions like the 1st of January, when that's such a big hook for people, is just to say to yourself, I know this is going to be a tough time for myself. Give myself some grace. Okay, if I have the thought, let it be a thought and let it pass. Or in my case, now I think I'm to the point where I say, show yourself, eat that thing and say, Mm -hmm. it's okay. And now I feel great. And I had fries last week and I'm fine, (laughs) you know. I know you are a big proponent of science and scientific Mm -hmm. thinking and all the latest science shows us that resolutions that are big and dramatic don't work and micro steps work. Oh, absolutely. So if you break it down to what's the smallest little step you can take every day towards a goal, whether it's weight or fitness or mothering, Mm -hmm. it works. We call the micro steps too small to fail, you know, because they're really, really tiny, and then you build success. But and, then they become habitual, And right? they become habitual, yeah. and we are really our habits. Hmm. I like that. I think some parts I do that with, but there's other parts that you could do more with. You know, mm-hmm. and I think anorexia has got to be one of those. Yes. My anorexia went into excessive exercise, and so that was another way to control. So once I started eating food at all, then I had to burn it off down to the calorie. You know, I was so extreme about my exercise and that was through college for the most part. And then I think what saved me was probably getting out of college and getting a real job when you can't exercise four Mm -hmm. hours a day because you're working. And so then I had to be thrown into real life where that's not realistic. Yes. Um, No, my youngest daughter too. And her anorexia started when she was 11 and she's now 28. So at that time there wasn't as much awareness So she would literally come and wake me up at 5 a.m. and say, Mommy, let's go jump rope. Let's go run. And I thought, oh, how great. My daughter is so healthy and active. And I would literally get up at 5 a.m. to go do these things with her. For me, the wake-up call was when it was her next birthday and she refused to eat the birthday cake. Mm -hmm. And somehow you look at that, you look at all the little girls, you know, eating the birthday cake and she was holding back and... Mm -hmm. I got it. And I think what you said about going into a hospital is that dramatic moment when I took her to the doctor and the doctor said, if you don't gain 10 pounds in the next two months, you'll be hospitalized. Mm -hmm. And that was her 
beginning of the journey because as you said, it's a journey. Yes. That's how my mom, I got off an airplane. I had been in the Netherlands with my grandmother visiting family for a month and I had full reign because she wasn't watching me. And it was wonderful for an anorexic because I had no one checking anything I was doing. And I came back, I think I was 79 pounds and I was five foot five. I should have been hospitalized. And I got off the airplane and my mom said, we're going to go to the hospital now. And I said, no, no, no. And she said, yep. And she told me on the way to the hospital that the girls there, they get fed through IVs and through their throat with a tube. And that's what you're going to, <laughs> she's very medical and scary. And I said, please, please, I'll eat. I promise, you know, and she said, okay, but you're also going to go to therapy. And that was one of the first times I had gone to therapy, but even through therapy. And I wrote this, but it's sad to even say it. I would put rocks in my pockets because they would weigh me. So I would put pebbles just to weigh a little bit more. I mean, really sick. You think about how sick I was for a very long time. I thought anorexia was my choice. Even the person who had Mm -hmm. anorexia thought it was a choice. And I used to say that to myself, that I was choosing because that's the control. Anorexia is not a choice. It's in your mind. Your mind is telling you things that are not true. And it's a finally realizing that and feeling that. That's what my book helped me to do too and why I'm going to write so much more about anorexia because I was thinking that globally there can't be anorexics in places where food is short. But there are. Anorexia restriction is everywhere. Control of your mind for food, because food is one of those things that everybody has access to or doesn't have access to, which can even, I guess, I've been talking to my therapist a lot about this, can even make them more anorexic because they're used to not eating. And there's a whole slew of ways. So that gave me such a different feeling about what the last 25 years has been like for me, or 20, 30 years. Yeah. And also very often, This compulsive quality that Mm -hmm. anyone dealing with uh, some form of uh, addiction Mm -hmm. or mental disease is suffering from, how does that translate to your relationship with your phone? Because that's Mm. become a very modern addiction. Yes. Again, we set our intentions. We say we're not going to touch our phone during this meal or we're not going to sleep with our phone and then we break them. So. What's your relationship with your phone like? It's complicated, my phone and I. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. And we are back with the Thrive Global podcast. Let's rejoin the conversation. Like everyone, I make the excuse often that it's for work because it is. I never use my laptop. I will say that. I just don't use one. I don't use one at work. I don't use a desktop. I just use a phone. I write my book on my phone. So that's how much I'm actually on a phone. It's very difficult to distinguish and talk about distraction because if I was just writing my book, that's one thing. And this is where I've had to develop some sense of boundaries with myself. I almost had to get to the point of deleting apps of social media so that I could focus on just writing my book because that's all I needed from my phone. Email for work and my book. I almost had to delete them. I didn't because I finally practiced myself into, did you open Instagram today? And if it was a no, it was a micro step, I guess, in a way, because I had to, did you open it after 10 a.m.? Because yes, yes, I'm at work. I can do Instagram and all the social medias. But after 10 a.m., did you open it? Well, tomorrow you have to do after 11 a.m. or whatever it is. And so giving that extra time. or That is a micro step. That's a great micro step. Yeah. Even just not using it for certain times of day, not using those parts because the other parts are just necessities and separating those two ideas when that everybody was posting their usage 
and screen my, time. The screen time. That was so helpful because you could see by percentage which ones you're opening. And I don't think that I was clear that I was doing some of them as much as others. So I look at that often now. I force myself. It's a little hard to do. But then last two weeks ago, before the hurricane, I said I will only post for hurricane updates because I feel like that's my job and I feel like I need to do that because of my followers, that's what they're looking for. But really did not use my phone at all because I was home for three days and off. And it was easy. And I told my husband, I'm like, I thought I was going to have a much harder time with this. But I think the micro steps to get there helped me. I think it would have been a much tougher time pulling off the bandage and saying, absolutely not. Even the Hurricane Center updates, which I'm super addicted to, (laughs) is like looking at the nerdy stuff. I reserve time in the morning when I know they come in. On those days, I said to myself, just check at 5 a.m. It will definitely be in there. You can check at 5 p.m. and that's it. And I was good. Maybe it's because I'm an anorexic. I was easy to control myself. (laughs) You're putting it to good use. And do you sleep with your phone? So it's funny because we used to have all of our electronics. I took all of the charging stations and put them over. And I switched to a, a little alarm clock, like an Alexa type alarm clock. But I had it fail once and it scared the life out of me because I'm like, I'm not going to get to work. So now I still have my phone as a second alarm on the floor over next to the nightstand. So yes, but a little (laughs) more separated. But if you wake up in the middle of the night for whatever reason, you want to go to the bathroom, you never look at it. it. I can't. I know I can't because if I do, then I'll get deep in. I can't. And also the light. I read a lot about the light changing. The blue light. Yeah. But I think especially what we are finding, all the latest science shows, is that despite most people's intentions, if their phone is nearby, if they wake up in the middle of the night and they can't go right back to sleep, they are going to go to their phone. You're much more conscious of your sleep because you wake up so early. But What science basically shows is that we need to minimize how much we have to depend on our willpower. Yeah. (laughs) We are weak. We are weak. That's hard. In the night, I don't have as much trouble. The day, though, I I can understand and I can be empathetic to people's. I see my husband do it a lot. I would say he's a nighttime phone guy. And then he'll get wrapped up in a headline of some sort and then he can't sleep. In the last month, we had that boat story where all the people, the 34 people died in the boat. Yes. I don't know why, but I was on the road for the hurricane and I woke up thinking about that. My mind was racing, not at all because of something I read, but because it's in my job. And I thought, I've got to write Will Carr a note. It's going to put me to sleep better if I just get this out of my mind. And so I did. That was the one time I wrote. And it actually, I think it helped me go back to sleep Mm -hmm. because I wrote him and I said, had to be an explosion, right? Had to be this. I was so obsessed. So my curiosity and my obsession with that story was too much. And then, and then I you I handled it and that was it. That's right. So it was almost like when you write something down and, and that's mm-hmm. advised yet, right? When yes, you have a journal next ra- to you. But the idea is to write it down with a pen and paper. You no, know, not on your phone. Uh, because the problem with the phone is that it's not really a phone. You know, the last thing we do on it is phone anybody. It's kind of a nuclear weapon. It yeah. has everything. That's why the more you can minimize the temptations and the notifications. And then there's the additional problem that you've spoken about of social media and perfection. Mm. I love what you've written, that people see me for 30 seconds at a time and they see someone who's got a hair and makeup team that put them together and they are looking all right in the world, but it's not. We don't all have perfect lives, even if they're seemingly so. Not even close. I think that that's the fear for a lot of 
teenagers, especially I have a 17 year old sister. I see how her and her friends interact on social media. And because I didn't grow up with that, I didn't have a cell phone until the end of college. So I really was out of it. That shows about my age. You know, I really didn't even have a computer until I was out of college. So I didn't grow up with that. So I can't imagine the pressure that is out there to have popularity beyond popularity that people had in high school. That was enough pressure. That was hard enough as a teen to be managing that. And I was so worried. I was, without knowing it, campaigning to be homecoming queen since I was in eighth grade. I think I just needed all the people in my AP classes and my nerdy classes to love me. And I needed all of the cheerleading folks to love me. And then my soccer team and the basketball players and the, the more athletic people. I had such a obsession with being everywhere. There was a Brady Bunch episode where Marsha signed up for all of the clubs and all. (laughs) It's me. I just needed to be a part of everything. So I can't fathom if I would have had, these are other clubs. These are other social circles that you have to be the best at. I would have had to have the most followers. I would have had to have the most likes. I would have had to have made the best content. I can't imagine what it would have been like and what the pressure is they feel. What do you advise all these young women who admire you and look up to you? How do you tell them they should deal with social Mm -hmm. media and all these pressures? I think the perspective is almost impossible for a young person because they haven't lived it yet. Because at one point I thought about writing to teenagers, but then I did three focus groups with teens in different places in the country to see what their lives were like now. And it was really enlightening, but it was also surprising that their issues, a lot of them were very similar to the same ones that we had. They just come on different platforms now on Instagram or on a different place. I don't think it's don't use it. I think it's realizing what it is, just like the rest of life. My new advice for everyone is it doesn't matter and nobody cares, which sounds horrible (laughs) unless you break it down. But most of the things, even today, that I've worried about don't matter and they certainly won't matter tomorrow definitely not in a week. Unless they matter a year from now, I don't give it energy. So that's the checklist I do 20 times a day, at least. I ask myself if I have that moment of worry or that moment of something, I ask myself those three questions. So I tell my sister all the time, ask yourself that. Do you think this is going to matter a year from now? Because I'll tell you right now, I don't remember one thing that I was worried about (laughs) when I was 17. Not even close. I was at my 20th high school reunion. A girl came up to me. She's like, remember when we had that and you called me and you were mad and this? I was like, you remember that? No, I don't. (laughs) I had a lot of life since then. No, I don't. That doesn't matter. Nobody cares because they're in their own mind. There was so much in my career, so much of my young life where I thought that people were coming at me. Mm -hmm. I thought all of it was directed toward me to get at me, to make me not look as good. Most of the time, people are so wrapped up in their own problems, their own issues, That's where it's stemming from. It has nothing to do with you. Nobody cares because they're in their own head. Now, when I'm in my job and something happens and maybe someone I work with says something or does something, I say to myself, there's no way that's about me. There's no way. Mm -hmm. And then that really helps me even today to get past that. So I tell her that all the time is think about what that person might be going through. Think about where that intent came from when they said that or when they told the other person the gossip that I forgot even her most recent problem. But it was one of those things. Looking back, she'll think that's silly and she won't even remember it. But that sense of perspective Mm -hmm. is really a very spiritual sense. Mm. I mean, every spiritual tradition or philosophy talks about that, like putting things in perspective 
remembering what really matters and what doesn't. Were you brought up in a particular spiritual tradition? Were Lutheran growing up? I wouldn't say so. I think that this was something that I just learned in life more and that I've just studied a little bit more. Even in my this morning, my meditation was um, the series I'm doing is a Winnie the Pooh inspired. I think I'd heard this before, but I didn't really focus on it, how Pooh in Taoism, they're all related. Each character is related to each. And so each section today was about Tigger and being bold and being yourself and all these things and what that character represents. I would almost say that I'm becoming more spiritual as I get older, but I do see the parallels to the things that I was brought up with, the ethics and the morals and all of the great things that I think most religions give you. So you're already discovering them in a new way. Yes, finding them and connecting more to them. Exactly. Um, And also you see the connection with science. Yes. You are so passionate about science and scientific expertise and even writing Chasing Helicity Mm -hmm. to help kids who are interested in science. So have you thought of this connection between science and spirituality? I mean, the way you describe the storm and trying to find balance, it's so interesting. It has to be. There's no question in my mind that there's a balance of energies in some way. I don't know the exact way, but I believe that there is a higher powered energy, whether it's the sun or our God, or whatever it ends up being, or a combination of those, which would be really exciting. (laughs) God forcing the sun, you know, the sun, but down to the atoms that are making up the table and the floor. I think all of that working together, that's my religion now. It's the beautiful spirituality of everything finding balance. And that's funny because that's the question always like, how do you balance it all? We don't. That's the answer. And so nothing does. Our earth can't do it. It's horrible at it, actually. It tries constantly, but it never happens. And that's the lesson we should take is it's never going to happen. So accept that kind of like in a Winnie the Pooh way where he just accepts it and says, this is the way it is. And I can be the best form of me in this moment, or I can choose to freak out and have more piglet in me and worry and concern, or I can have the overly energy. There's all of these parts that I think if we just let it go and be, then that's my religion. <laughs> I'm just in the be religion. <laughs> I love like, that. Yeah. I love that. That's your next book. I think, and my husband will often say, because he is so different than me, he'll say, do you know how hard it is? Because when he has a problem, he's voicing it. He wants to get escalated and he wants to get angry. And I'll kind of suddenly be like this neutral force, which he in the end loves, but in the moment, a lot of times wants me to go right with him. And he'll say, do you know how hard it is to be married to Buddha? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It took me a long time to be Buddha. (laughs) Uh, And now he's bought me a couple of Buddhas, like as a reminder reminder that you you can get emotional, which is my other problem. And the thing that I'm working on with my therapist is, and even my producer last week says, you never get phased. And I'm like, I can't anymore because there's not a lot that can phase me because they don't matter. And that perspective I've really like instilled because of the natural disasters I've been in. When I came away from Katrina, which was the first big storm I'd been in, I had seen dead bodies for the first time in my life. I had told stories about people who lost their whole families. I had emotionally broken down so many times as you're not supposed to as a journalist or what I thought the idea of a journalist was at that time. And I was starving like everybody else was because we had not been fully prepared. I was so thirsty. We hadn't showered in over a week. And then we started driving away. And I had the 
worst breakdown, I think, in any of the storms I've ever covered because I realized I'm leaving and they can't. These people can't. But that perspective that I've been able to get in every natural disaster, because I've been in all of them now, I go away from each one gaining more gratitude for my shoelaces and the smallest things that these storms and the energies that they're trying to get out have taught me and hopefully a lot of other people lessons. And that is something I'm overarching grateful for my science that I've loved so much because it has made me the best human I can be too. And it's taught me a lot about myself. And it's also taught you about being in the eye of the hurricane. Yes, it has. <laughs> I touch the eye wall a lot and then I come back. And then I touch the eye wall and I come back. So what makes you smile? Oh, my kids. Oh, my gosh. They are so funny. That joy and the purpose that they give. It's not that I didn't have purpose before because I know I did, but they really are the best thing I've ever produced. You know, I produce a lot of other things and content and television, but they are the best thing ever in my life. And to find my husband who is as cynical and funny and New Yorker he can be, he's also in his heart has real joy. He has a laugh sometimes that when he's alone watching a really stupid movie, he watches like bench warmers, which is one of those movies that I'm like, why are you stopping on this again? And I can shut the door and be going to sleep. And he is laughing so genuinely that there is real childlike joy in him. He loves that and he can make other people feel that way. So I've now surrounded myself with these people who are happiness. And that was something I never did. I was searching in constant search for chaos, but I've found chaos now in my job. Certainly have enough of it there, but I've now surrounded my personal life with actual peace and joy and the things that I was so afraid of before. I had a slew of horrible relationships. I was constantly looking for someone to challenge me, and I thought that that's what love was. But I finally found somebody who doesn't, it doesn't have to be hard, and that was a revelation to me, that love doesn't have to be difficult. And once I did that, and that's what I always tell my younger producers and stuff when they're in these relationships, and I'm seeing they're telling me the same story that I went through. And I'm like, right, shouldn't feel like that. It should never be that difficult. There are challenges enough in every other part of life. You're going to need to be a team, a partnership. That's what that's for, not so you can fight each other constantly. And once I found him and gave him a shot, because he'll tell you I broke up with him twice. He loves this story. And that was because I wasn't ready to be treated well, really. But it was the first time I was being honest about it. So I told him, I'm not ready yet. This is too much. And he was too much. He was ready to marry me after two dates. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not, I, I don't get loved. So if you could just back away a little bit. And then I finally told myself the third time that we were together, let this guy do this. Let him pour love over you and see how it feels for a month. I guess it was a micro step in relationship. Yes. It was a way of saying, just give it a couple of days. Give it a week. Give it two weeks. After four weeks, I was like, how did I not do this before? I knew he was wonderful, but I kept pushing that away. And this finally, I just like forced myself to eat the fries. That's what it was. <laughs> it, was, it, was it was breaking my mold. And then I couldn't imagine life any different. Why I ever was in a terribly abusive relationship. Why I was in these extreme, I thought they were passionate. Passion doesn't mean that you're constantly uncomfortable or questioning yourself or questioning the relationship. That's not passion. I think I was misunderstanding what those words meant. I so much want young women and men who are struggling through a lot of what you've struggled through or similar to listen to this and see how much hope 
you bring because really ginger this has been amazing and i want to thank you for being not just the top storm chaser (laughs) but a real everyday philosopher and a true joy to be with thank Thank you you. thank you it's honor can't wait to read Thank you for listening today. We hope you heard something that inspires and empowers you. Be sure to follow the Thrive Global podcast on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at thriveglobal.com or reach out on social media using the hashtag ThrivePodcast. Tell us who you'd like to hear from and what your favorite micro steps are. Until next time, be well and thrive. This podcast is a production of Thrive Global and iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Ariana Huffington. Thrive Global is produced by Sandy Smolens and mixed by Matt Noble at Audiation Studios in Bronxville, New York. Thank you to Lindsay Benoit O'Connell for booking and wrangling our wonderful guests and for providing editorial oversight. Derek Clement is our engineer, and special thanks to Nikki Etor and Kari Lieberman. See you next week.